You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening and welcome to all of you. Happy Wednesday. Glad to have you here. I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. I just want to say thank you to all of you who are joining. It's a very important topic that we're going to be talking about tonight. A couple of weeks ago, we started a two-part conversation about the question, is racism a gospel issue? And in part one, we discussed the question, what is the gospel? Because if we're going to understand whether or not something is a gospel issue, we first have to get straight what the gospel is. So we walked through the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and we examined the unfolding of the good news, the euangelion, and uh, what that gospel is. So if you missed that conversation, you can go catch that in the part one. And we wanted to get straight on what is this good news that changed the world. And we made the case last time that the gospel is a recounting of certain historical events that brought a supernatural interruption to the world. And we walked through 10 major points of this good news that the Messiah has come and has entered into human history. We're just going to do a quick recap of what that gospel is by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to just walk through a few verses here in 1 Corinthians 15, which is a good basic summary of the gospel. Paul says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand by this gospel, by this good news, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain for what I received. I passed on to you as of first importance. Now notice this this phraseology here that this, what Paul is going to tell them is of first importance. That means it is the most important thing he wants them to know about that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and then the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This is a great summary of the historic Christian gospel. And what I want you to notice here is that it's not talking about giving our testimony. It's not talking about loving our neighbor. Those things are not the gospel. The gospel that changed the world is a series of historical events that provided the foundation of our faith. Now, another point that we made last time was that there are a lot of things that are being called gospel issues these days. And so in this teaching, I want to focus the conversation on using the issue of race and ethnicity as a case study to understand whether it is in fact a gospel issue. 
And my hope is that by doing this, you will be able to apply this rubric to other issues. When people come up to you and they say, such and such is a gospel issue, you'll be able to carefully weigh that out and, and be able to discern for yourself as to whether or not it is, in fact, a gospel issue. Now, when we are talking about the, the issue of whether or not racism is a gospel issue, I do want to take a minute to briefly define here what I mean by racism, because people who promote the framework of critical race theory, which is the dominant worldview of our culture right now, uh, especially for those who are under the age of 30, critical race theory will often take everyday terms and then redefine them to mean something entirely different. And sometimes talking to these people who hold this view is a bit like trying to nail jello to the wall. But I'm going to define racism. First, I'm going to define the, the critical theory definition of racism, which is prejudice plus power. So if you ask somebody, what is racism? And they give you an answer of prejudice plus power. I just want you to know that that is a definition of racism that has been influenced by critical race theory. However, the traditional definition is what I'm going to be um, using here in these teachings, which is more of a race-based superiority. In fact, I have a link here to a Merriam-Webster dictionary definition of racism, a belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacities and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. So that's what, what I'm meaning in these teachings when I use the term racism. It's this traditional definition. And to, to be honest, racism wasn't even really a word until about the beginning of the 20th century. Now, that's, that's not saying that racism wasn't a thing. It's just that it wasn't a word. And, and that's going to be important later on. But, but racism involves basically the idea of assigning values and even rights to some people based on their skin color. Now, in, or, in my view, for something to truly be a gospel issue, it should be intricately tied to the gospel itself. It can't be some tangential issue with only one or two verses. Neither can it simply fall under the broad banner of love for neighbor, because as we saw, gospel isn't about love for neighbor per se. That's, that's the law. That's what I do in response to the gospel. I obey the commands of Jesus, but it is not the gospel itself. So as we unfold scripture here, we want to be looking about whether race ties into the gospel itself. And that's what we're going to explore in this teaching. Now, what I'm going to be laying out tonight is a very brief, big picture survey of a theology of race and ethnicity from the Bible's point of view. And I'm going to move very quickly through the flow of scripture. I'm going to try to give you a survey of how God thinks about race and ethnicity as laid out in scripture. So if we want to have our thoughts match God's thoughts, then we will want to consider what he has to say. Okay, let's start at the beginning of human history. We're going to think about Genesis 1 and 2. When God first created humans, he created them in the garden. He created them for perfect fellowship. But then something tragic happened at the fall. 
Adam and Eve fell into sin and we see that God throws them out of the garden in Genesis chapter three. And here's what we, what we read. We read that Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And then we're going to scroll down here a little bit. It also says a few verses later. So the Lord banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed him on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So after the fall, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Now, this is important because if we're going to have a theology of race and ethnicity, it's going to also involve understanding what's going on with the land and where people live, because that's really intricately tied up to this conversation. So we see a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 10, we see Noah's sons come off the ark. And then it says, this, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. And then I'm going to scroll down here a bit. To the end of the chapter, it says, these are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within the nations. From these nations spread out over the earth after the flood. And I've got a little graphic here to show what's called the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. These are the nations as they spread out over the Middle East and what we see Israel and a bit of North Africa there. And these are the places that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. The very next chapter in chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. And what we see here is that not only is humanity still sinful after the fall, but now it's going to affect civilization. Humans can't live together. Because all the humans are sinful, sin compounds the problem and living in civilization becomes very problematic. So in Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. It's the first few verses and it says the whole world had one common speech at one language. So the Lord then scattered them over all the earth or in Hebrew, it would say over all the land and they stopped building the city. And this is why it's called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So we see in these early chapters of Genesis, we kind of see almost three major events that we have to pay attention to if we're going to understand a theology of race and ethnicity. There's the first event of the fall where God kicks the humans out of the garden. Then there's the second event of the flood where God judges humanity, but he saves one family, but they come off the ark. And from that one family come the peoples of the earth to repopulate the planet. And then we have kind of this other kind of corruption, almost like a, a, a corruption of the nations that happens in Genesis chapter 11 at the tower of Babel. So with those kind of three judgment events in the backdrop, what we're supposed to know as the readers is that humanity is exceedingly wicked and that 
they have a, we have a profound problem with sin. But God makes a promise in the very next chapter in Genesis chapter 12. God selects a man. Here's this man, Abraham. He's out worshiping the moon in Ur of the Chaldees. And God selects this man to become the family line through which he would bring the Messiah. And so we see in Genesis chapter 12, for example, in the first three verses, that God makes him a promise that he would be a blessing to the nations. And so this is where we really start to unfold God's plan, not just for the Jews, but for the nations. Someday God would send a savior and his followers would bring a message of healing to the nations. So we've laid some groundwork here on the New Testament or on the Old Testament. Now we're going to get to the New Testament. And when we get to the New Testament, we see in Jesus's life that he is born into a humble Jewish family. And in in a he the his family lives in the northern part of his country and that he has a very humble upbringing by these parents. Is very normal. He has a very normal childhood, very normal family on the outside. But even from the beginning, we see that God's plan is so much bigger than merely to reach the Jews. Because right from the beginning, we see in the Christmas story, we see that the shepherds come to worship Jesus as the Messiah and the Magi from the East come to worship him. It's more than likely that the Magi were Gentiles. And we see this pattern throughout Jesus's ministry that, yes, he came to the Jews first. He was born among the Jews. His parents were Jews. His message came to the Jews first. But it wasn't just for what what the gospels called the righteous or the law compliant Jews. It was also for people like the shepherds the people who were not completely compliant to Mosaic law. And he also came for the Gentiles. And we see this really start to unfold after his resurrection. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, it says this, therefore go and make disciples of, notice what it says, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What I want to draw your attention to here in this verse is the fact that Jesus sends them out to all the nations. Part of the the great reversal of the, the Tower of Babel is going to be the great, what we call the Great Commission. And Jesus sends out his disciples It's the 12 apostles and the 72. And by the time we get to Acts chapter one, it's 120 people. And he's going to send them out to all the earth, teaching them to obey. So they're going to bring the commandments of Jesus to the nations. The law of Christ would be another way of saying it to the nations. They will teach the nations how to obey all the commands of Jesus So then we get to Pentecost in Acts chapter two, and we see the nations show up again. 
Acts chapter two, Peter stands up on Pentecost. So this is a, this is sometime a few weeks after the resurrection and after the ascension of Jesus back into heaven. And they were staying in Jerusalem. God fearing Jews from every nation under heaven were there. And they were all there for the feast of Pentecost and they heard a sound. And all of a sudden they heard all these people speaking in their own language. And they were utterly amazed. They said, aren't these people Galileans? Like, how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And notice here again, this is like the reversal of Genesis 10 and the tower of Babel. It's the reversal of the table of nations. All of these, these same nations that were mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, now they are declaring the wonders of God in their own language. And so at, the, at Pentecost and at the Great Commission, we really start to see the unfolding of God's plan for the nations. And the apostles really start to understand what God is up to. If you were to read through the book of Acts, our family has actually been reading through the book of Acts because we just finished Pentecost. And we have been seeing how the gospel goes first to the Jews in Jerusalem. Then it goes to Greek speaking Jews. Then it goes to God fearing Gentiles like the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter eight of Acts. And then the household of Cornelius. And then by Acts 13 and 17, the gospel is going out to people who have no knowledge of God or his word. People that are, you know, just they're, they're in a completely different worldview. So then the church reaches this critical moment and a big decision must be made. Do these Gentile converts need to be circumcised in order to become full Christians? This singular question has direct bearing on our question of is racism a gospel issue? Jews are a distinct ethnicity. And they're a religion. They're kind of unique that way. And they had separated themselves from the nations as God's special people. God commanded them to do that. And one of their key ethnic markers was the practice of circumcision. And what happened in Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius and his household get baptized in the Holy Spirit, Peter has an amazing insight. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 10. He sees that the Holy Spirit comes over Cornelius and his household. And he says, I realize how I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. You know, the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Christ Jesus, who is Lord of all. And you know what happened? the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went about doing good and healing those who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. This is very important because what Peter is starting to put together is this gospel message, which is what he, he summarizes here, these historic key historical events we talked about last night or last time. In verses 37 and 38, he's starting to put it together that God does not show favoritism. He doesn't favor the Jews 
over the Gentiles, but now the Holy Spirit has been given by God to the Gentiles. So from there, a few chapters later in Acts 15, we see that the leaders of the Jerusalem church gather at the Jerusalem church for the first church council to discuss this question. Do Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be full Christians? And let's look at that together. It says, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, Gentiles must be circumcised and require to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. He purified their hearts by faith. This is so important. Because now the gospel was going out to the nations and they had heard Jesus say that in Matthew 28. And they had heard him say in Acts chapter one to go in the power of the Holy Spirit and bring the good news to the ends of the earth. But now it was really starting to register to them. Oh, he isn't just talking about Jews at the end of, at the ends of the earth. He's talking about everybody. And when, when the Holy Spirit came over Cornelius and his household something happened and it broke down that, that wall of between Jews and Gentiles and that ethnicity barrier that, that divided them. And so what the church realizes that the Holy spirit is doing at that Jerusalem council is that now the gospel will go out to the nations and everybody in God's household is equal. God does not show play favorites. He doesn't give more of the Holy Spirit to Jews and a lesser amount to the Gentiles. He doesn't give more Holy Spirit to men than he does to women. He doesn't give more Holy Spirit to free people than slave slave people. He gives the same amount to everybody. All you have to do is accept that invitation to come into a relationship with the Father through Jesus the Son. That is the good news. In the next part of this, we're really going to start looking at how this issue of breaking down that ethnic barrier between Jews and Gentiles starts to impact the early church. And the question of foundational unity of the Jews and the Gentiles among God's people, it just is a continued emphasis throughout the New Testament. Once you know to look for it, you can see this as a key theme that pops up in multiple epistles, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter two, and it really is the most extended discussion of a theology of race and ethnicity. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. So the circumcision of the Jews. Okay. So Jews and Gentiles, circumcised, uncircumcised. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. And so those of us who are in the nations, I am not Jewish. I am, I am a Gentile. 
And I, as, as my family history going back, we were far from God. We were far from the covenants and the promises of God. Um, but now it says in verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one. In other words, Jews and Gentiles, he's broken down this barrier of ethnicity and hostility has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself. This is the, this is the vital verse that you, you need to know about. If you're going to have a proper theology of race and ethnicity, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. In other words, Jews and Gentiles. For through him, we both have access to the father by one spirit. So when we think about this, we are no longer foreigners and strangers. We are fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. We're a family built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ Jesus as our chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. All of these analogies, are you catching this? That we're a household, we're a holy temple, we're fellow citizens. We've been brought together and we have become a dwelling place. So the only ethnic barrier that the Bible concerns itself with is the ethnic barrier that was separating Jews and Gentiles. The Bible does not concern itself with racial categories. The only barrier that it, can, it even talks about is the differences between Jews and Gentiles. And that has been taken down. It has been obliterated in Christ's death. In fact, in the very next chapter of just a, a few verses later, um, Paul says this, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation in this. And you circle that word mystery. What is this mystery that Paul is talking about? In reading this, then you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was here it is. Here's the mystery, which was not made known to people in other generations as it is now. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. This is the mystery that we see unfolded in the book of Acts. This is the mystery that God's plan was for the nations. It was to reverse the Tower of Babel. It was to reunify the earth, but it wasn't through political systems and nation boundaries it was to create a new spiritual unity, God's household, his temple, his family. This unity comes at the foot of the cross. Another way of saying it, he says it in Colossians chapter three. He says this, there is no Gentile or Jew circumcised or uncircumcised, 
barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. In this, we see the culmination of God's plan, this mystery that he calls it in Ephesians, that, that he has a plan for the nations. And so in that plan, he shows no partiality. He gives the same Holy Spirit to everyone. And in God's household, everyone has equal access to the Father. That is what it means to be one. That is the foundation of our unity. Now, in the new creation, we see in Revelation chapter 5, we see that Jesus' death goes out and it affects every tribe and tongue. He says, I saw the lamb looking as if it was slain. This is a vision that the apostle John has of Jesus. The seven spirits of God went out to all the earth. Who's worthy to open the scroll? It says, you are worthy, Jesus, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. Here's two more analogies of what we are. We are a kingdom and we are priests and that we will reign. To think about the Chronicles of Narnia, that they were kings and queens, the sons of Adam, that, that they, were, they were created to reign. We are created to reign. And it goes out to all the tribes, tongues, and nations. And this is so fascinating to me because we see in this vision and we see this realized throughout the book of Revelation, that, that pattern of every tribe, nation, and tongue repeated several times that, that the, the gospel has in fact gone out to all the earth and that there are members from all over the globe. Christianity is truly a global religion. It's not a regional religion. It is a global religion. Now, obviously, we could say much more on these issues, but again, I'm only trying to give you a big picture of God's plan for humanity, his plan for the nations. So although we are divided by sin, there is a hope of unity, but that hope only comes through the blood of Jesus. And so as the gospel goes out and hearts are changed, we teach the nations God's law. We teach them to obey all the commands of Christ. And they also um, have hearts that are transformed and they in turn hear the good news and they, they change and, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So it's sort of like yeast leavening the whole lump or salt and light to the world. It, it, it's, or the mustard seed, it, it starts off small and has a big effect. But, but those things can, can take time as the gospel goes out. But, but that is how God has set it up. His kingdom is a kingdom of the heart first. It's not a kingdom of nations. It's a kingdom that starts with the heart. So when we think about the question of, is racism a gospel issue? One thing we have to keep in mind is that the, the gospel isn't actually concerned with race per se. We don't see divisions between groups of people based on skin color in the Bible. The division that we do see is between circumcised, who, who represented God's people, the Jews, and uncircumcised, those who were far from God and his covenants. 
but then they've been brought together through the cross, through the work of Christ. And they've been made into a new people, God's household, a temple, all of these, these word pictures, a family. So in that sense, the answer to the question is, is racism a gospel issue is, is, is yes and no. It's, it's no in the sense that the Bible doesn't seem to be concerned about race. It doesn't assign value according to skin tone. That's just not how they thought about things back then. In fact, if you notice in the book of Revelation, the wording says every nation, tribe and tongue. There's nothing about skin color. There's nothing about race. It, it just didn't, doesn't seem to have been a common way of categorizing people back then. But if I were to ask the question, is racism a gospel issue? Another way I would say, yes, it is a gospel issue. Because if I understand the question to really be asking the spirit behind the question, is that, is there anything that prohibits one group from coming to the cross? I would say, absolutely not. There's no hindrance. Members of every nation, tribe, and tongue are invited to the cross. And if someone were to put a stumbling block in the way of another person because of their race and ethnicity, that would be a huge problem. And yes, that is most assuredly a gospel issue. Okay, let's wrap this up. And I'm going to have one of the final movement of the teaching here. Now, there is a discussion about ethnicity that I think is important for us to consider. And it happens in the book of Galatians. Now, if you remember what I said earlier, that this question of whether or not Christians needed to become Jews in order to be fully accepted, full Christians, was a key, if not the key question in the early church. And now that you know that, you're going to start noticing it in, in different places in scripture. But Paul confronts Peter. So here's Peter. He's the one who unlocks the gospel to the Gentiles, uh, to the household of Cornelius in the book of Acts. But then, you know, it's hard to change worldviews. He had thought about Jews and Gentiles one way his whole life. And so sometimes he found himself slipping back into his ethnic identity and putting his ethnic identity first over his Christian identity. And Paul confronts Peter to his face about using his ethnicity as a Jew, as a dividing wall between him. And it became a hindrance to the gospel. In Galatians chapter two, Paul recounts where he, when he came to Antioch, he opposed Peter right to his face that he was separating himself from Gentiles and he, he says in verse 14, you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile or not, and not like a Jew. How is it that you are forcing then Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So we know a person is not justified by the works of the law. In other words, he's not justified by circumcision, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Christ that we may be justified. In other words, Jews and Gentiles, we're all saved the same way. There's not one salvation plan for Jews and another salvation plan for Gentiles, God doesn't show partiality, remember? And so we have to understand and be patient because our culture programs us that sometimes our ethnic identity is more important. Our ethnic identity is first. And so we can slip back into that. But we need to remember that our identity in Christ is first. 
once we come to Christ, we, we ought to be willing to, to lay aside other hindrances and, and that we see ourselves first and foremost as Christians, as brothers and sisters with others, part of one household of faith. And that's what makes this discussion so important. Because when Christians engage in segregation, according to race, it undermines the gospel in a way that somewhat parallels the error that Peter fell into. When American Christians, as recently as 50 years ago, and some still today, engage in race-based partiality, we are engaging in a profound contradiction to the gospel. The gospel says that things the things that may divide us according to the world standards, such as socioeconomic status or where you grew up or male and female warfare or ethnic divisions, all of these things ought to melt away once we are in Christ. Now, obviously, my skin doesn't change and I'm still a woman. Those physical parts of me are real, but it's no longer my identity. There's something bigger that unites us. I remember as a teenager, I I went on a mission trip to Mexicali with uh, my high school youth group. And I didn't know very much Spanish on that first trip. And, and I had never been to another culture. And there was just such a wide cultural barrier between myself and the people that we went to minister to. But I remember stepping into that church in Mexicali, Mexico, and listening to these people just praise the Lord at the top of their voices. And I could easily see that something greater than our differences united us. They worshiped the same God. They had the same Savior. They had the same gratitude for forgiveness. And we enjoyed a sweet fellowship together. Even if it wasn't in the same language or the same culture, we knew that we were partners in the gospel. And in Christ, there's foundational unity. But when we, when Christians and historically, I'm just speaking as an American Christian, because that's my culture. That's my nationality. And when we put up barriers to fellowship, and even when we put up barriers to fellowship in Christian marriage because of, of race, we are undermining the gospel itself in a deep and profound way. We've almost like forgotten. We have amnesia about who we really are. We're not living up to our true identity. And we have separated ourselves at times from entire sections of God's people and as a terrible sin. And, and so, yes, in that sense, racism is a gospel issue. Now, all of this being said, I actually think that what most people mean when they assert that racism is a gospel issue, they actually mean something quite different than what I've been talking about here in these teachings I think that many of them, what they really mean when they ask that question is they're talking about the critical race theory definition of racism. They're talking about dismantling disparities and things that generally fly under the banner of systemic racism or structural injustice. Now, are there things that we could talk about as legitimate examples of systemic racism? Yes, I believe so, but that's not the purpose of this conversation. And if a Christian wants to advocate on a particular issue of what of systemic injustice, um, that might be more under the appropriate banner of love for neighbor. And that, that can be a conversation. But I would again want to emphasize that love for neighbor is not a gospel issue. 
Love is law, not gospel. It is obedience to God's commands. It is what we do in response to what God has done for us. And so in that way, I would say, no, systemic racism is not a gospel issue, but it is a question about love for neighbor. Okay, hopefully that makes sense. And it is interesting to me to observe that Jesus was born under an incredibly oppressive government who engaged in crooked and oppressive tax structures. They publicly hung lawbreakers on crosses naked at an alarming rate. One half to two thirds of the population was, were slaves. And to notice this, this oppressive culture and, and structure of the Roman Empire, isn't it interesting to notice that Jesus didn't tell his followers to dismantle any of these systems? And even his inner circle was confused about this. After his resurrection, one of them asked him if now was the time he was going to finally restore Israel's kingdom. In Acts chapter one, he, he has this, this question. He says in verse six, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? See, even after the resurrection, his disciples, some of his disciples at least, still thought that his kingdom was eventually going to be a physical kingdom. And he says, no, basically, it's not for you to know the dates of the time that the father has set, but you will receive power. So go preach the gospel. That was his commands to them. Jesus had a very different plan. His plan was not to tell his disciples, go out into all the world and dismantle oppressive political systems. His kingdom was an inside job. It was transformed human hearts. So in the midst of this oppressive government, the gospel created an entirely new people, an entirely new subculture, unifying people, regardless of their social status, regardless of their slave status, regardless of their ethnic background. It made brothers out of masters and slaves. It made sisters out of Jews and Gentiles. A great example of what I think is the, the plan that Jesus had for cultural transformation is the book of Philemon. And I think it's, it's such a short book. It's only one chapter, but it's a great case study of what I think was the plan all along. And Onesimus was a slave who had run away from his master Philemon. And Onesimus was now a help to Paul. And he says, therefore, although in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son. In other words, he was my spiritual son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and me. I am sending him back to you. He is my very heart. I love how much Paul loves Onesimus. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I didn't want to do this without your consent so that any favor you would would not seem to be forced, but would be voluntary. That's such an important value in God's kingdom is voluntariness. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer a slave, but this is the critical part, but better than a slave. As a brother, he is very dear to me, dearer to you both as a fellow man, a fellow human, and a brother in the Lord. If you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. 
This was Christ's plan (laughs) that we would become family. And by becoming family, it would change how we treated each other because we wouldn't disregard each other. We wouldn't disrespect each other. So we would look beyond the social status and that, and notice that Paul never says, release him, make him a free man, let him go. He doesn't say that, but it's sort of implied that as you love your brother, like your feelings about him might change and, and that you would see him as a partner, just as, as Philemon saw Paul, that they were equal. Again, God doesn't show partiality. We all have the same amount of the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to dismantle the institution of slavery. Neither was slavery based on race back then. It was usually a way of subjugating others because they were conquered in a war or they were impoverished or something along those lines. But again, the kingdom of God can be seen like yeast that leavens the lump of dough. It's, it's often, its effect is often slow and changes in culture and changes in systems sometimes take generations Sometimes they go quickly. Sometimes God raises up a man like William Wilberforce and can get a law passed and get rid of the transatlantic slave trade with one law. And other times it takes a long time. But as the gospel goes out, God's plan is build the kingdom of hearts first. And as people's hearts change, then slowly that will have an effect on culture as well. And I want to thank you for being on the live stream with me tonight. And, you know, I know that our nation continues to wrestle with our relationship and our conversations about race. My hope is that Christians will catch the vision of living up to our true identity. Christians have a hopeful vision for racial and, un- and ethnic unity. Sadly, again, we have not always lived up to that vision But from God's perspective, there is something greater than ourselves that unites us. And that is the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't need to go out into the world and be taught by critical race theory on how to engage in racial reconciliation. God's word has a lot to say about ethnic issues. It's a very simple message. We can just say no to bitterness, to resentment, to division. And we can say yes to treating one another as family, giving each other grace, honoring one another as fellow image bearers, forgiving each other generously. But if you know somebody that you think is struggling, share it with them, send it to them privately, send it in an email or a message. And let me know if the message blessed you and if it helped you and if it helped inspire you to talk to somebody and to step into the risk of a new conversation. Let's all change the conversation together. Let's be hopeful Let's be generous with each other. Good night and God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.